Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you for being so understanding. You're listening to Just One of the Guys, the show willing to admit that the host knows jack all about the Legion of Superheroes, but is willing to co-opt the another host that does. Another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is an internet radio show dedicated to bringing you coverage from the, of the Green Lantern economics from cover date of June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Reed. Two characters who we're actually going to be covering this time in issues not of Green Lantern. Well, Green Lantern is ancillary on this because we're going to be covering part three and part four of Final Light along with the issue of uh, Parallax, Emerald Knight. Uh, it's the end of Final Night. It's a pretty epic storyline, and because it's such an epic storyline, I felt that you, the listeners, needed someone else to uh, come in and tell you a little bit about it. So I went on the internet, and I found an amazing podcaster to come help me out with this. He's a person who knows a little bit about one of the characters who is pretty important in the storyline. He uh, hosts the podcast Pad Smash, a Peter David Hulk podcast, and he also, more germane to this issue, uh, does a little bit on Charlie Niemeyer's uh, Superman in the Bronze Age, where he covers Superboy in the Bronze Age, and also talks a lot about a lot about the Legion of Superheroes. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my privilege to have back on the show Mr. J. David Meter. How's it going? Thank- very good. Thank you very much. I thought you were going to go somewhere else with that introduction. That I found an amazing podcaster, but he wasn't available, so I got David. <laughs> no, Dave, dude, don't sell yourself short. You are an amazing podcaster. Trust me. Um, yeah, like I said, today we're going to be covering the last half of the Final Night series, and uh, we're going to be dealing with uh, Hal Jordan. And uh, Hal Jordan's going to be going away for forever. He, he won't be back. Is he going to the farm to play with other Hal Jordans? Yes. <laughs> he, will, he, will, he will go live a happy life at the farm with Grammy and Grandpa. But yeah, we're going we're gonna to be dealing with some uh, pretty epic stuff. Uh, it's uh, the Sun Eaters freezing the planet. Uh, the heroes don't know what to do. Superman is essentially out of power because, you know, the sun is gone. And this is an epic storyline that I can't wait to get into. So... As I usually do, I'm going to take the obligatory break, uh, plug a couple of promos in, maybe one for Mr. Uh, Weeder's podcast, and as soon as we get back from those, we'll get into our coverage of Final Night Part 3. 
Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. These freaks are dedicated, hardworking people. I'm Batman. Whosoever holds this hammer, if he be worthy, shall possess the power of Thor. This looks like a job for Superman. Let's hear it for Captain America! It's the Dying Man! It's the Rocketeer! Gentlemen, you're up. <laughs> Comics Monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Since the day Bruce Banner was bathed in gamma rays, he has fought the creature within. The creature torments Banner. The creature is unstoppable. The creature is incredible. Now, the countdown has begun to Banner's greatest confrontation with the Hulk. And all of his internal battles have come down to one moment. One final chance to reclaim his life and be whole. And three words will change the Hulk and Banner forever. Honey, I'm home. Bigger. Smarter. Greener. The Hulk is taken to new heights as writer Peter David delivers an all-new phase for the Jade Giant. And Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast, is bringing it all to you. Join J. David Weeder, Lee Busby, and Michael Bailey as they turn a new corner and cover the all-new, all-different Incredible Hulk. Find the Ultimate Hulk podcast experience weekly at iTunes and at IncredibleHulkHomepage.com. Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast. Experience the epic like never before. And we're back. So let's go ahead and we'll start out with, of course, Final Night Part 3. It was cover dated November 1996 and released on September 18th, 1996. All these books were released in the month of September. The cover price was $1.95 U.S. and $2.75 Canada. The title was Keeping Hope Alive. The story was by Carl Kessel, 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 whatever you call him. Penciled by Stuart Eminen, inker Jose Marzan Jr., colorist Patricia Mulvihill, letterer Gaspar Saladino, assistant editor Eli Ale Morales, and editor Dan Thorsen. Our story opens with Pharaoh and Guy Gardner carrying the battered body of Wildcat into the Warriors' bar which has become a temporary shelter and hospital for heroes and citizens alike. Guy yells for the overworked medic to take a look at the injured Ted Grant, and just as he begins to triage the hero, the power goes out. Luckily, Spark, the Legion's new lightning lass, is on hand to power the down generator, while Legionnaire Inferno is tasked with sterilizing the instruments of the operation. Spark comments on Pharaoh's recent saves, and tosses him a Legion flight ring, since she will probably be busy keeping lights on at Warriors for a while. As Pharaoh begins to thank Spark, a television announcement from the bowels of hell appears on the screen at the bar. It appears that the demon is willing to offer the people of Earth a warm place to stay, with only their eternal souls as the cost of salvation. Of course, the offer is soundly rejected, as noted by Lex Luthor, who is briefing reporters on his plans to save the planet. At the same time, the Spectre is visiting the hot-naked Gaia, the embodiment of the Earth Mother, 
and using his powers in an attempt to keep her alive. Meanwhile, at his personal observatory, former Starman Ted Knight calls Star Labs to inform them about a change in the diameter of the sun. This is related to the superheroes at the lab, and Brainiac and Luthor come to the same conclusion about the same shrinkage of the sun. It will result in it going supernova, ending all the life in the solar system. Luthor glibly comments that at least the world won't have to worry about freezing to death, which riles up the Man of Steel. However, without the sun to power him, Superman really is in the position to make threats, something that Luthor revels in. Looking for other options, Lex leaves the room as Superman puts a call into Oracle about the situation. Back at the Metropolis West River, Dusk is prepping her ship to take off when she's approached by the Phantom Stranger. Peeved by her treatment of the people of Earth, the Stranger does his hocus-pocus thing and takes Dusk to see the positive side of humanity. In their travels, the duo witness Barbara Gordon calling her father for probably last time, Zatanna, Fire, and Firestorm going to the South American village to rescue the Ray and shed a little warmth on the village, and Sentinel reuniting with his children, Jade and Obsidian. Uncertain that all the good the stranger showed her about humanity resides in all of them, Dusk materializes in a frozen back alley and noisily stumbles over a trash can. The commotion alerts some passerby carrying torches, but this time, rather than assaulting the alien, they bring her to the warrior's bar to try and keep her warm. Cut to Smallville, Kansas, where a nearly powerless Superman greets his loving parents. Martha and Jonathan are certain that their son will find a way to defeat the Sun Eater well before it's time to plant the winter wheat. But Clark says they might not have to worry about that, as he tells them the truth about the situation. Back at the Warrior's Bar, Guy Gardner is bemoaning the fact that his new Voldarian physiology won't allow him to drink away his problem. Looking at his former Green Lantern uniform, Guy toasts the glory days when he could do almost anything, when suddenly, a green glow materializes around him. And that is part three of Final Night. David, uh, what do you have for notes on this? I've got quite a few. I started with the cover. Mm -hmm. And as I kind of told you... You know, this this actually has most of my favorite characters from DC in it. I mean, clearly we have Superman, but we have Kyle, Green Lantern. We have Wonder Woman. We also have Captain Marvel. Mm-hmm. See, Captain Marvel, unfortunately, he's big on a lot of the covers, but he doesn't play that much of a part in the book, which is kind of disappointing. You would think with Superman out of the situation, Captain Marvel will be sort of the go-to guy in the in the power department uh, for the series, but... Yeah. You're you're thinking logically. You're thinking logically. You the thing is, if, if there were writers that were thinking logically at DC all these years, Captain Marvel would have a much higher profile. Exactly. But I, I like that this pairing, this grouping, brings a solemn tone. Because we're looking at body bags as mm-hmm. they're floating up at the reader. And snow everywhere. You're looking at arguably the most powerful superheroes in the DC universe. And they're helpless. Exactly. And yeah, it is a pretty grim looking cover. I mean, initially, if you're if you're only focusing on the heroes, it's a good shot of them. But when you look down on the ground and you actually see the ambulances and the people just piling up body bags, it it really adds some oomph, some weight to the fact that this storyline is pretty, pretty dire. So I I love this cover. Yeah. And it just it I think it's the quiet solemnness of it that really draws me into Mm. it. Uh, then we, I jumped to page two. I still hate that version of Booster Gold's costume. I mean, he's just in the background, but I'm like, whoop. 
What yeah. genius thought of that? Yeah, the booster gold armor from the 90s is just it, even more so than Guy Gardner's morphing powers. The booster gold armor is perhaps one of the doofiest thing from the 90s. Yeah. Um, I like the inclusion of the Legion here. I, I'm not really that up on my Legion stuff, which is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show, because we have this character of Pharaoh introduced here. So mm-hmm. uh, eventually I'm certain we'll get more into, you know, how he relates to the actual Pharaoh lad from the Legion of the Superheroes and this character. Yeah, that plays uh, that plays more into issue four. Yeah. But this was a weird time for the Legion. This is a part of the Legion history where I'm a little bit sketchy, uh, which is, you know, quite a quite a chunk of time after post-crisis, after the crisis on Infinite Earths, when we actually had this weird soft reboot and then finally a full hard reboot, which is kind of where we're at now, which is kind of where we introduce, you know, the Legionnaires were introduced, the, the book. Um, basically, Zero Hour wiped out all the continuity. It was just, it was a train wreck at this time. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that's kind of the theme for Legion continuity. Um, but we had new code names for all the characters. So you didn't have Lightning Lad, Lightning Lass. You had, uh, the, you know, Spark and Dragon Mage. And <laughs> wow, <laughs> It was okay. a weird, weird time. Because Spark here would be Lightning Lass, which is Lightning Lad's sister. But I think they wanted to try to make it more contemporary, and it just never quite caught on the same way. There was some charm missing to that. Mm. But, yeah, I'm glad that they were brought in, which kind of points out that, well, the danger may not be as dire as everybody thinks since the Legion's still there. Yeah, well, and it does play into that whole time paradox thing is how can this actually be occurring and does this actually get resolved properly if we actually survived in the 30th century so it's one of those things where where time paradoxes could play into it but i i think it's like any time travel story sometimes it's just best to just go with it and realize that it might not work out in the end but just have fun with it because yeah what you're saying since the Legion did come from the 30th century, and they're here. Obviously, they resolved the situation in the 20th century. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been able to circular logic yourself into an aneurysm. Yep. (laughs) Um, Hey, Mary Marvel makes Mm -hmm. her lone appearance in this panel, walking past Guy. Mm -hmm. Another powerhouse that could probably be used somewhere else. Yeah, unfortunately, like I said, the Marvel family, they make a little cameos here, but unfortunately, they're just kind of window dressing. And yes, the, you've got these three immortal or th- these three majorly powerful magic characters, and they're left to really do nothing. So I don't know whether this was just that DC didn't know what they wanted to do with the characters or if there was still licensing or rights issues or who knows no after after the crisis dc owned them outright at this time power of shazam was being published Mm -hmm. uh, written by jerry ordway this it did play into the crossover within that book so they they were busy but it was still kind of a train wreck as far as you know who who's getting stepped up here pharaoh a brand new character Mm -hmm. well and i'm i failed to mention the last show that uh uh, during this month, a lot of the major DC books did have Final Night tie-ins. So this wasn't just relegated to the four-issue series. I mean, that's you can just read these four issues, but they're pretty much all throughout the DC, uni- DC universe. Final Night tie-ins were related to this book. So I'm certain there was probably more going on in the Power of Shazam storyline. Yeah, on that front, but not in the main story, which was kind of sad. Um, 
I guess there are worse things. That's a first world problem. Yeah. And I'm glad you pointed out, I mean, this was a very quick, quick um, crossover. Because mm-hmm. I mean, they all came out in one month. All the cross, you know, all the tie-ins came out. This is how I think a crossover should go. You have one month where there's a core story going on, and most of the titles tie in, and then we kind of move on from that. And there is something major, but at the time, we didn't know anything that was about to happen. There were no spoilers at this point. At least not for me, but I was... As I told you, this is kind of a special miniseries because this is one of the few times during that frame of time that I actually had any money in my pocket for comic books thanks to some early birthday money. Nice. <laughs> it was the first year I was out of my own. I mean, hand to mouth would have been a step up. <laughs> well, yeah, I agree with you. This is the way that they should do uh, these epic storylines. And this truly is epic because we're talking about the end of the world here. And it's very quickly done, I think. Kessel and Eminem, Eminem did a great job of getting it all out on time and getting it out all in one month. Also, it, it, you know, because it's put out every week, it does give you that sense of urgency of it. The, in fact, the entire storyline is only supposed to take place over a one-week period. So the fact that it's coming out right after one, right after another in a month, you're not having to wait for it, you know, stresses the urgency of it and gives it a, a, a more grand feel. Well, it's also... You know, they didn't do very many additional tie-ins. The The only real tie-in that was outside of a normally published book was the Parallax special that we're going to look at a little bit later in the episode. Mm-hmm. So you're not buying extra books that you don't want to. If you're following, say, the Superman titles, you're free to continue that. Just add, you know, four issues to your stack and you're done. And, very, and there's not eight different miniseries covering different angles. Mm-hmm. Like we're looking there at is you, today. Blackest Night. Yes. <laughs> Final Crisis. It's fine. Oh, Christ. <laughs> but here's another positive. If you look at the lower left-hand panel of page two here, mm-hmm. the entire emphasis of your show on Guy, showing that he's not a douche, is played out perfectly because, yeah, Guy can be rough around the edges, but he's telling Pharaoh something important that Pharaoh needs to hear, that what happened to Wildcat here is not his fault. Mm-hmm. That's important because guy, he's not doing it all. He's not getting ooey gooey sensitive, but he is saying, look, kid, you know, you did a good job. This was something you couldn't control. Otherwise, Pharaoh would have probably had more weight on his shoulders. Yeah. Well, and and guy's not busting his chops, anything. He's trying to support another hero, which I think is upstanding. Well, and uh, I was going to comment as well. I think Kessel in the first couple of issues of this, when guy was introduced, he was basically portrayed as the JLI guy, the sort of arrogant, brash jerk that no one really likes. And now he's finally got more of what I like to call the Bo Smith feel in that he's a, he's a guy who doesn't take any crap from anyone, but he isn't uncaring and unfeeling. And he's able to be supportive of people and be a hero, but still have that sort of, edginess that you know was kind of common in, with characters in the 90s but very yeah very good characterization mm-hmm. well and i credit that to to carl kiesel kessel you know great writer great writer great artist all mm-hmm. around <laughs> uh i'm gonna jump to page three unless you have anything else on page nope. two okay uh guy probably needs to to chill a little bit uh because you can point at things without blasting it to bits mm-hmm. well uh and I understand that it's behind the wall, but yeah, well, I'm certain he owns the place. So, you know, 
plus Buck, Buck Warco is financing all of it, so he's got tons of money, so it's okay. He can blast the wall if he wants to. Well, yeah, but behind the wall was the generator they needed, and he blasted that, too. <laughs> Oops. Well, yeah, maybe a bit of his hot-headedness you know, still remains with him, so there you go. Uh, but that's really all I have on that page. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Spark decides to, to use her power to keep the thing going. Where was that a little bit earlier? Well, I guess, you know, they still had power, so she really wasn't required to do it yet. So, Oh, no, I mean other other areas, other ah. power generators. Could there be a bigger generator that she could use to cover more areas? Makes sense. Eh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hindsight's twenty twenty. True. Let's see. I, I, I would like to mention, yeah, on that page that I was glad to see that some of the ancillary characters from the Warriors book were here. As you see on the bottom panel, we've got Tiger Man helping uh, an elderly gentleman around. So they didn't throw away all the uh, the characters from the Warriors bar and the Bo Smith runaway. So at least, you know, Tiger Man is there. Or that could be Taki Tani. You never know. No, Taki Tani would look much more, uh, much less feral. OK, well, there you go, then. Uh <laughs> Page four. This is kind of. I know this is horrible of me, but I get I get the sort of mean Joe Green, you know, Coca-Cola <laughs> commercial thing here. Here, kid, have this. Oh, thanks, mean Joe Green. Mr. Green. Yeah. You need any help? Mm-mm. Want my Coke? No, no. Really, you can have it. Okay. Thanks. That's the way it should be. Have a Coke and a smile. And see, I <laughs> I actually had to think about that twice because I'm like, wait, why is she giving him the ring? Oh, yeah, the rings aren't sensitive to a person mm-hmm. like a Green Lantern ring. These yeah. are just these are. You know, this is props like the green, the the Legion ring I happen to be wearing right now. <laughs> wait, just a wait, ring. Wait, it doesn't let me fly. I was going to say <laughs> that would be completely, totally awesome. Uh, same page on panel four. You know, the fact that the demon shows up to offer a uh, solution to the whole it's getting really cold thing. I guess that's a nice little it's a nice little insert that they put in the book. But yeah, I. I don't think that anyone for a second would have accepted this. And I do find it amusing on the next page that you've got the Pope looking in on it and actually contemplating it. So. Yes, I was going to comment on that. You know, uh, the, so for, the, for the Pope, this is on the table. Yeah, it's like, hmm, you know, save the world, eternal damnation. I, I think I think even the Pope would uh, probably still say no. So yeah, hopefully. <laughs> If you don't have anything, I'm moving to page six. Yeah. Uh, a nice, nice headline of the Davy Planet: Earth to Demon, go to hell. So yes, I'm glad that the people of Earth decided no, this is not the solution that we want. And then we get just more of Lex Luthor's just amazing arrogance throughout the story. And now at the time, what was going on with Lex? Was he a fugitive from justice in the Superman books, or do you are you up on that? I'm trying to think of this time period. He, this was before the fall of Metropolis. Let me take a look at that. Okay. Because at the beginning of the final night story, he was on a deserted Island and he was having his, uh, quote unquote honeymoon with the Contessa. So I don't know where in Superman lore that this sits and what, uh, 
because when he returned back to in the second issue, when he returned back to Metropolis, he met with Superman and he said, you know, all these charges against me will eventually be proven baseless. So I didn't know whether he was on the run from justice or what was it is. This was following the fall of Metropolis and he is going to throw his his own clone under the bus soon. So, (laughs) okay, makes sense. Actually, I have one more thing on page six. Okay, go for it. Um, it bothers me. I don't know if it's my specific copy, if the, the print just didn't take, but Ron Troop in the lower left-hand corner, I had a lot of problems. Recon- he does not look like an African-American. Uh, no, he, his skin isn't really that much darker than uh, Luthor's. I mean, I guess if you say facial featurely, he might look... Uh, but yeah, uh, and he, he, he doesn't look, you're right, he doesn't look very African-American. He doesn't look very black. And, and I don't know whether that's just a mistake in the coloring or, or a, a difference in the artwork. Because I would think that uh, Eminem was drawing the Superman, the Adventures of Superman books, and they probably would have had a chance to draw Ron Troop. So the fact that he doesn't translate here is kind of surprising. Yeah. If that's, if that's all moving on to page seven, uh, I... I guess I'm kind of disappointed because because of my viewing of certain movies uh, starring uh, Harvey Dent and uh, the new Karate Kid. I thought the center of the earth was a big magnetic spinning ball, not uh, a hot, naked, red haired girl. But, you know, maybe that's just uh, the horrible movies I watch. What what movie were you watching? The, the Core. Have you? Oh, wow. Heard? The Core starred Aaron Eckhart and uh, oh, what's her name? Hillary swank she's a girl you know yes <laughs> i i should have i should have known that when i saw uh, the you know the movie that she was in the boys meet girls or whatever it is whatever boys don't cry That's yeah oh, well. yeah that was uncomfortable um <laughs> but yeah the specter you know the fact that the specter last issue was like oh i can't do anything you know Forget you, Phantom Stranger. Go back to eating your poutine. Um, no, uh, he, now he's down here trying to keep uh, the quote-unquote Earth Mother alive. So, yeah, it's the Spectre. He's a charming fellow, full of heart and... No, wait, <laughs> he's spirit of vengeance. Yeah, that's true. So so why is he... Well, I, I guess I, that's no idea. He seemed like a good cosmic character to throw in there. That works. Moving on to page eight, I find it... Uh, I don't know if it's ironic or coincidental, but the person who was the former star man is the one who is uh, monitoring the star that is getting ready to explode in their system. So I, I found that iron, but it's nice to see Ted Knight here in the book, even though that he is almost as underused as, you know, the Marvel family. Yeah. Well, Ted was not the current star man. Jack mm-hmm. was still around. The only reason we didn't see Jack is because James Robinson somehow swung a deal where he couldn't, the character of Jack and some of the core characters in that book couldn't be used unless he either wrote it or approved it. Hmm. But Ted, that makes sense. He, he does have an observatory. He is uh, very familiar with the you know, solar system. It's kind of what he does. So very good name check, but this is all you'd really need from Ted is, Hey, I'm watching the stars. Uh, things checked up deuces. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sun's getting smaller. I thought you'd want to know. Yeah. Kind of like kind of like the guy from Galaxy Quest, uh, Quan, Commander Quan. <laughs> yes. <laughs> thought you'd like to know. 
uh, moving on to the next page, we get the expository thing where all the heroes get the news that uh, the sun's going to go all kablooey. And uh, uh, here in page three, again, Luthor is just such a condescending prick. It's like, you know, especially to Brainiac 5, who is obviously a superior mind to, to Lex. It's like the universe isn't simply isn't as simple as you might think, Superman. Always saying this to Superman. So I how see, I don't I don't know even as if I was Luthor, if I would smart off to Superman at this point, because Superman's still strong enough to snap his neck. That, not that Superman would do something like that, but no, but I I don't know how Superman sometimes doesn't just think about it. I mean, it must <laughs> I be do. It must be that wonderful, you know, Kansas upbringing because I would like, you know, well, you know what? Uh, I could punch a hole through your skull, but uh, I'll, I'll hold off. But yeah, now we get the idea that not only is the earth going to freeze, but, you know, now very soon the sun's going to explode and that's pretty much it. We're, we're screwed either way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Moving on to the next page. I, I didn't have anything on page 10. Do you have anything about that? Just that I hate the Black Canary costume from this era. It's not like the Jazzercise suit from the JL, JLI era, but yeah, man, Black Canary went through some ugly suits. Mm hmm. Yeah, the, the the classic thing with the the fishnets and the black leotard thing is, I mean, it's it's awesome and classic, and uh, the new updates they had are almost as bad as the new Power Girl suit. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, page eleven. I'm glad that the uh, Phantom Stranger drops drops all he's doing drops all he's doing and decides to uh, play Ghost of Christmas Present with the uh, alien here. So it's nice that he takes her around and shows her all the wonderful sides of humanity which is nice you would expect this kind of thing from the specter because the the, the thing i kept thinking about reading the the you know this page and page 12 was i thought of kingdom come mm-hmm. and i'm like wow this kingdom come came out just a couple of months before this so <laughs> this style uh, it wouldn't have been as tongue-in-cheek as it would be if you did this exact same scene today mm-hmm but I, I like it. I like the fact that he's going around and showing all the characters interacting with their with, uh, you know, family members and trying to show that the human race isn't as misguided or as hopeless. Yeah, as hopeless as, you know, that Dusk would uh, have led, been led to believe, especially in the last issue where they almost set her on fire. But we've got some nice scenes here with uh, Barbara Gordon calling her father essentially not really telling him that the end is here, but you know, just saying her little goodbyes. We've got Satana and Fire in that South American country helping out the. Yeah. Yes, nothing wrong with Satana. See, Satana. Yeah. She knows how to rock the costume, and she doesn't really change it up all that much. It's the it's the top hat, it's the coat, it's the the bustier or whatever, and the fishnets. It's yep. a it's a classic costume, and it works. Doesn't need any changing. But we get. Uh, that scene and then Firestorm coming in to uh, try and help out warm up the place for just a little while. So it's nice that the heroes are doing their little, well, you know, what uh, Zatanna says, you know, think globally, act locally type bit. So, you know, if I if I ever have to be ill, I want a condition where a Brazilian supermodel superhero has to kiss me. <laughs> Wouldn't we all, sir? Yeah. <laughs> we all. Then we get to uh, Sentinel or I guess uh, the former... You know, Golden Age Green Lantern helping out some people, and she gets to he gets to meet with uh, his uh, kids, uh, Jenny and Todd, or Obsi- or Jade and Obsidian. And 
I guess Jade has also updated her costume as well because uh, I remember hearing about this on the Fire and Water podcast about uh, Shag asking, I think Jerry Ordway who drew it, whether or not the uh, tri- or the diamond thing on her chest was actually a boob window or not. And I mean, he didn't phrase it as a boob window, but you know, she she moved away from the uh, boob window thing and then just moved to like the uh, sort of Janet Jackson, you know, <laughs> sort of star thing on her left breast so there you but go you, but you know and all honestly i'm glad you pointed that out because look at that look at the black canary costume the 90s are so typecast as, as being big boobs big you know big guns however a lot of female characters went to more demure costumes mm-hmm. yeah this is definitely a less revealing costume than the original or the sort of original one that we noticed we know jade in so i'm liking it of course it does have the 90s trope of the belt and the pouch as well here so you know some things you just can't get away from you got to have a place to carry your capri sun that's all i'm saying exactly my next note's really on page 18 18 and 19 was just a a really nice two-page splash that just gives sort of vignettes of all the major heroes going around and doing what they can to help. We've got, you know, Superman and Guardian delivering supplies to a hospital, Aquaman saving whales, which Aquaman would do, Wonder Woman, you know, tying up a bridge, Batman and Robin fighting Mr. Freeze, and then Guy Gardner scooping snow. (laughs) Damn all. Yeah, but he is... He's in a foreign country. He's scooping snow. Out. He's scooping people out of the snow. There's a baby being held up there. <laughs> That's true. Well, so, you know, yeah, I guess it's I guess it's better than if he formed his hands in the guns and was blasting the snow away. So I guess I'll give him that. <laughs> Might be careful with that if there's a baby present. That's true. Then again, then after that, we get the page where the whole ghost to Christmas present thing with the Phantom Stranger is done and. Like most times, the fan or stranger just poofs off to wherever he goes. And we get a scene that's uh, reminiscent of what happened in the last issue, except this time we see the better half of humanity who's going to take her in and take her to a place to keep her warm. So it's it's nice that it, that uh, Kessel is able to show the negative side and the positive side of humanity and get both parts in this book. So, yeah. Yeah, this part felt a little... It felt a little cheesy. I mean, I know it has its place in the book, but those people were a bit too nice. Mm-hmm. Well, I I can give you that. Uh, it's nice to have the parallel there, but it does seem seem kind of like a forced trope that you know we have to show uh, people with pitchforks and uh, carrying torches and trying to kill someone, and the next time we see the same thing, but it's exactly the opposite. So yeah, yeah. it's kind of a trope, but you know it. It's part of I think it's part of the whole the the whole motif of it. And it kind of gives her the idea that humanity is not supposed to be as bad as she first thought it out to be. But, yeah, I will agree with you. It could be seen as a bit heavy handed. But we're going to be full of heavy handedness in these Mm -hmm. these coming issues. So, yes. Then again, uh, moving on to page 21, Clark going going to see his mom and pa and and not being not even being able to fly there he has to take the uh what uh the guardians you know sort of jet car or whatever you call it and just him you know that the the fifth panel there where he says uh, uh don't think you'll have to worry about it much longer pa and the look on uh, martha's face just your lord clark is it that bad and 
Superman throughout this entire thing, even depowered, even even not being able to do anything, he is still the most regal character in the book. And it just, again, it's it's a testament how good writers who get Superman can do great things with the character. He's just, Superman is just awesome in this book. Yeah, but the, like you said, he is regal. He looks great. The thing that struck me about the, the, this page, though, is that when Superman throws in the towel, when he gives up hope, you gotta know we're screwed. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's what that's what Kiesel is is doing here is saying it really is that dire, folks. Mm-hmm. And it and you can feel it throughout the story. Like when, I agree with you when Superman says it's bad, you know that it is bad. So it, he's he's really setting up and playing on the uh, whole idea that this may not work out for the planet. Yep. Final page. Guy can't get drunk because of his new powers. So there you go. And. Then uh, the the last panel, you see a uh, big green glowing thing. So no idea what that could be at all. You don't I, know who it is. No, it could be, could be Kyle. I, I'm thinking it's <laughs> Nort. <laughs> uh, wouldn't that be awesome if Nort were the one who saved the entire, the entire planet and destroyed the Sun Eater? That would be so cool. Suddenly this book just dropped like six notches in my, <laughs> in my estimation. <laughs> See this. This was the first time I saw a guy in this form because the last time I saw him, he was wearing the the large, you know, red armor. At least in real time at this mm-hmm. point. So my first thought was, man, I feel bad for him. He can't get drunk during this period. And I realized, wait, what the hell did they do to him? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is this is one of those uh, eras of guy that I think the story writing was really good, but the concept may have not been. Uh, like I've said on my show throughout the entire guy Gardner run guy being written by Bo Smith is some of the best stuff that the character's done, but the whole concept behind him being this sort of living weapon that can pull, uh, guns and whatever out of parts of his body. And it was just really a nineties thing. And unfortunately it was a concept that really didn't work anywhere, but the nineties. So there you go. Uh, at the end of the book, we get the little Earthwatch timeline. I hadn't mentioned that in the previous episode, but it basically gives us all five days to live, and we are in the middle of day four, where the oceans are starting to freeze. So, I like this. It's it's kind of set up in a sort of very early Internet Explorer, maybe even AOL type uh, setup uh, for the internet. So it's kind of <laughs> neat. It's Netscape Navigator. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I forgot all about Netscape. It's probably better that way. I've, I've just brought something back to your life you didn't need. <laughs> As did everyone. No one wanted to think about this game. But uh, that's the end of this book. Uh, we've got a couple more to go. I'm going to go ahead. If uh, Do you have any more notes on this, David? No, no, we covered everything. All right, Groovy. I'm going to take a little break. We're going to plug another promo in here. And when we get back, we will come back with Final Night, Parallax, Emerald Night. Gather together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero Superman Superman. The 
Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring the thrilling adventures of Superman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast, Superman in the Bronze Age, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, the Schuster Herald Podcast, it's Superman, the Carousel Podcast, the Amateur Steel, a John Henry Allen podcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Sam Rizzo, Danny Sapp, Matthew Epps. I'm Isaac. I'm Adam. Dave Eunice and co host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we are back. And this time out, we're going to be taking a look at Parallax, Emerald Knight. It was cover dated just 1996, but it was released on the same date, September 18th, 1996, as the past issue. The cover price was a whopping $2.95 US and $4.75 Canada. My God, what ridiculous prices for comics. I would never pay that. Oh, I'm paying that. That would be like paying over $3 for gas. Ugh, can't ever happen. The title of this one was Emerald Knight. Knight as in N-I-G-H-T, not K-N-I-G-H-T, just letting you know. The writer was Ron Mars, penciler was Mike McCone, inker Mark McKenna, colorist John Callitz, letterer Chris Eliopoulos, associate editor Eddie Braganza, and editor Kevin Tooley. In the cold blackness of space, Hank Henshaw, the former cyborg Superman, stares at the source wall, the barrier between this universe and the unknowable source. As he prepares to break through it to obtain the knowledge of the source, he's confronted by the one who has tracked him across multiple universes, Hal Jordan, now known as Parallax. Cyborg taunts Parallax, saying that even if he does take him back to Earth, not even Superman can contain him. So what makes him think that he can? Jordan corrects the cyborg. He's not here to capture him. He's here to erase him from existence. And with those words, the Fighting McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, begins between these two foes. The two throw their best attacks at each other, with neither gaining the upper hand. Cyborg sneers at Jordan, asking if he really thinks he's enough to destroy him, and Jordan replies that it's not him that Cyborg is fighting, it's the seven million dead that he butchered in Coast City. And with that, the seven million emerge as emerald constructs, and tear into the cyborg, reducing him to nothingness. Contented with his victory, Parallax ponders what is next for him. Is he a hero or a villain? Fortunately, someone is there to help answer that, and that someone is Green Lantern Kyle Rayner. Offering a symbolic olive branch, Kyle tells Hal of the events going on with the Sun Eater, and he came alone to try and convince Hal to help. Hal is reluctant, but Kyle knows that Hal can become the hero that he was before. Hal teleports Kyle away as he goes to look at what he's up against, and when he sees it, he wonders if even he can do anything about it. Cut to the Warrior's Bar in the final scene from issue 3 of Final Night. The green glow that Guy saw was Hal, and not Nort, materializing in front of him. And now that he's here, Guy is indignant. Hal asks what kept Guy going, despite people's near hatred of him, and Guy replies that he knew he was a hero, and he could have cared less what people thought. He did the right thing, no matter the odds or anybody's opinion. And with this knowledge, Hal leaves, but not before he tells Guy that he always wanted him being the one to watch his back. Next up, Hal visits Jon Stewart in the hospital, 
and uses his power to give John the ability to walk again. Quickly departing, Hal lays a roses at the headstone of his old friend, Oliver Queen, pays visit to Tom Carface, Kalmaku, and finally meets with his former love, Carol Ferris. Carol knows that he's returned to try and do something about the Sun Eater, and despite his uncertainty, Carol knows that he will end up doing what is right. Knowing that this has to be goodbye, the two meet for one final kiss before Hal disappears one last time. Finally, Hal arrives at the site where Coast City once stood. Hal stares the memorial to the fallen city and vows that this will never happen again. And with that, Hal releases the Guardian Ganthet from within him and confronts the blue-skinned demigod about the impending destruction of the planet. Ganthet says what Hal did wasn't inexcusable, but the Guardians also played a part in it, and that if he so desires, the Green Lantern Ring could be his again. Hal says that earlier he would have jumped at the chance, but so much has changed, and now he won't need it. Ganthet acquiesces and vanishes, leaving Hal alone once again. But this time, he's focused, and Hal summons Kyle to the monument at Coast City to let him know that he's ready and that he'll be there to help. This was a nice sort of wrap-up issue for uh, Hal Jordan. You can kind of get the feel that this is Hal essentially saying his goodbyes to all of his friends and that Hal knows that this is probably a suicide mission and he's not coming back from it. So I think having – again, I go back to the fact a lot of people feel a bunch of negativity at Ron Mars for coming in and writing the Emerald Twilight storyline and then writing the ongoing Kyle Rayner Green Lantern. And they feel that Ron Mars never really had an affinity for Hal Jordan. And I think that's completely wrong because here he writes some of the best stuff that I've seen in a long time about Hal Jordan. And they really sort of redeem the character from all he's done with the whole zero hour thing. So wait, wait, there were people that were upset about Hal Jordan. Yeah, I know. It's hard to believe that uh, there was a group of people called Heat who were all up in arms about the fact that Kyle Rayner was Green Lantern and Hal Jordan was a villain. But yeah, let's let's ignore those people because I've tried to my turn. Well, actually, I think that's kind of relevant, to be honest with you. And, 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 and I don't I don't want to beat the dead horse, but it's kind of shows I think that was a turning point for fandom because th- this group, which was originally called Hal's Emerald Ed- Attack Team, and they decided to change it to Advancement Team to tone it down. But they actually took out ads in Wizard. Um, they picketed. There's still a website that's <laughs> devoted to them. <laughs> yes, there is. Oh, and it, I think I think this was a, a where fandom became vocal. This was pre Facebook, pre Twitter, pre really for the most part pre internet, pre mainstream internet. Mm-hmm. The fans have been there all along. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess at this point they just had. Uh, 
more access. I mean, recently in the books, we've been seeing uh, advertisements for AOL's uh, DC Universe page and how uh, certain creators would be on the page and you could actually chat with them. So mm-hmm. this was the the burgeoning era of the age where people could actually interact with the uh, comic book creators a lot easier. So you could see when people had problems or people had perceived problems with the book, it, they could be a lot more vocal than you know just writing into the letters pages. They could actually consolidate their their nerd rage or consolidate their desire to make changes and actually sometimes try and effectively get things done or ineffectively because yeah. <laughs> hell if it, well no technically Hal did uh, allegedly come back mm-hmm. and we will find you know we'll find out that yeah Hal does come back uh, not only as green lantern as we see in the new 52 and prior to that but he also came back as as another character uh, after or prior to his uh, return as green lantern so yeah Hal didn't go away and i guess that means that the heat people essentially did succeed in some way so do you think there is a sort of a, an allusion to that is it a, alluded to in the way he treats the cyborg how do you mean uh i'm trying to do this without spoiling or being blatant about it when hal has all of the the constructs of the coast city victims hmm speaking to the cyborg when he talks about erasing the cyborg from existence it does seem to allude to that character hmm i i i don't know if that was necessarily the point but it's an interesting theory i wouldn't i wouldn't put it past being something that they thought about but i i couldn't be for certain if that was what they were trying to get at yeah see i don't have my time frame straight in my head so i don't know you know, it, it it might be because I think uh, I think Mars was well aware with uh, people's feelings about this, but I don't know if he was trying to sort of uh, gloss over it or try and uh, deal with it in that way. But yeah, you know, it, it's a possibility. Um, do you want to go? Let's go ahead and go into notes. I love this cover. I love McCone's art. Uh, as far as I know. He did stuff off and on, but I think what he's best known for recently would probably be his run on the uh, mid-2000s Jeff Johns uh, Teen Titans series. And his artwork here is just really brilliant. And I don't think Hal as Parallax has looked as good as he does on this cover. I like the way he looks. Now, the one thing that I don't like, and this is another 90s trope, is the sort of weird piping that makes it look like his legs are encased in sort of a sort of metal mesh stuff. But other than that, I think Hal looks really good. Except, you know, he's got the constant grimace on his face. He's he's very he's very frowny. He's he's in need of a laxative. That's <laughs> what it is. Maybe so. Yeah, and I I've I've grown to like McCone. The first time I saw McCone's art was Exiles, a Marvel book mm-hmm. that starred Blink. And the way he streamlines a lot of costumes, if he has a lot of control over that, was kind of frustrating. But it worked really well with some characters. And when he redesigned characters like uh, the Bart Allen Kid Flash, he could knock it out of the park because he he does this really streamlined, sleek look, which I am always drawn to sleek mm-hmm. 
design. So, and here, I mean, I would not, I did not realize that this was McCone about tell us about halfway through and I flip back to the credits like, really? Well, and I think again, it's probably part and parcel with the era that he's having to draw in. This is still, we're still sort of coming out of the imagization feel of Marvel comics or not Marvel of DC comics. So DC is still trying to grab at that sort of artistic look of uh, the image books. And they're still drawing a lot of their characters with the, over the top, you know, shoulder pads and pouches and different textures to their uniform. So it's a nice, it's it's nice artwork and it's much better artwork. And it's much better, better '90s artwork than you'll see in a lot of books, in my opinion. Yep, with the exception of Tom Grummet. Oh, that's true. Well, but Grummet, I don't think ever really fell into the sort of '90s tropes, did he? No, and that's that's probably why. That's probably why he's so endearing to me is that he really did have kind of a classic feel, a straightforward superhero feel. Moving into the book, uh, you know, the first page really doesn't do anything. But the two page splash here of the source wall. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. That's probably one of my favorite renditions because it's still horrific. But later renditions, I mean, it would look. Different textures and it didn't it would look it just didn't look as frightening as it does here where these characters really do look like they're in agony Mm -hmm. especially the guy on the far left here oh yeah the guy that's bound i mean it's just it's absolutely stunning Mm -hmm. and it's you know if you think of it 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 being a wall and space being infinitely big you think oh i'll just go over it but no it's 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 an interesting idea for a barrier and to see these giant immense tightness almost godlike beings trapped in this basically encased in stone is a really epic looking uh image here and also to see the cyborg you know down here in this little tiny little thing up here yes. shows the immensity of it so yeah the showing yeah showing the scale is the big selling point of the image mm-hmm I do. I can't remember what page is on. I guess it's on page three. No, page four. That uh, yeah, and that second panel is a uh, cyborg Superman's flying over the face of one of the trapped Titans. Uh, Hal's monologuing that I f- I followed him across this universe and into another, intent on dispensing the justice he's avoided. I like the fact that they actually went and referenced in this book the whole DC Marvel crossover and especially the DC Marvel uh, or the Green Lantern Silver Surfer issue where uh, Parallax and uh, Cyborg fought for, I think, for the first time. So I'm glad that for one time so long ago, DC and Marvel could actually have crossovers and could actually even talk to each other. I so wish that that could happen again, but yeah. Well, the rivalry, I mean, yeah, they were competitors, but they, you know, they shared some creators uh, for for many many decades, and you know the the people from Marvel, the people from DC would go and t- have drinks together up until, well, up until Quisada really. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Quisada really hit stride, and Axel Alonso started mouthing off. Mm-hmm. And see, that's disappointing because I like this era where there can be a friendly rivalry, mm-hmm. and there can be competition, and there can be there can be snips and snipes at each other but not when there's just 
out and out animosity between the two companies. It, it, it grows the whole, if you can have these sort of crossover events, if you can have not necessarily a shared universe, but a universe where you recognize that things happened uh, like the like the whole DC versus Marvel thing or the Green Lantern Silver Surfer, or even stuff prior to that in the Bronze Age with uh, Superman and Shazam and uh, Batman and the Hulk and all that, that there were at least encounters that you don't have to necessarily say are canon or say, you know, affect, effectively change the universes, but at least occurred. And it, it makes it, and it could draw more people in, I would think. Yeah, it's... And they could cherry pick too. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, you pointed out, yeah, they talked about the crossover, but they avoided the amalgam portion of that. Yeah. Well, to to some point, I think you know, uh, the Wolverine Batman character, and I don't, I don't know. I have read very little of the amalgam stuff, but some of it, you know, seems kind of. Oh yes, we're gonna uh, we're gonna join these two characters together and create one that's just really wonky. So yeah, yeah. maybe so. <laughs> I don't really have all that many notes. It's a big fight. There's a lot of talking. Uh, the artwork is amazing. The uh, until really page twelve, I don't really have all that. M- that many notes no i mean and i kind of spoiled my big one up front about sort of the way hal pitches the the victims of coast city against the cyborg which is what really does kind of overtake him so mm-hmm. and but it's it's amazing the this this two well it's like a it's like a page and a quarter splash of how constructing up the seven million people of coast city to take down the cyborg on top of the source wall and they're all just tearing into him. And I love the fact that in this, uh, in the panel, if you look at the cyborg's eyes, they're just completely wide. eyed like, he's like, Oh crap. <laughs> I am completely boned here. But uh, <laughs> none of the people look like they're, everyone looks like an individual. There's different shirts. There's no one, you know, cut and pasted. It's, it's amazing. This this must have taken a long time to draw, or McCone must, just must be one of those people who can put out some really good contact content in a really short amount of time. But yeah, that is that is an epic epic page. Story wise, I want to comment on pages fourteen and fifteen, and this is you know where Hal's being kind of introspective for himself and looking at the uh, source wall and the Titans trapped in it, and sort of paralleling that to what he's done, and you know. Um, I think it's a credit, like I like I said at the beginning, that I think Mars does know Hal Jordan. It does know how to write him well, and he he's doing a good job of trying to give the concept that Hal, you know, searched for greatness and fell, much like these people. So what does he do now? Does he does he become a part of essentially this source wall and you know just sort of fade away, or does he turn things around and? change things for the better so which uh brings on the uh, introduction of kyle well, not the introduction but brings kyle into the story and again kyle has got the grimacey face as well too on page 16 here so it must be a trope of mccones well the, well the world is ending nobody's <laughs> yeah, <it> was, <laughs> nobody's uh, dancing and singing yeah no one's you know 
puppies and kittens and sh- sunshine. So yeah, I agree with that. Um, trying to look at my notes. I really don't have all that much. No, I mean, I, most of mine were overall that this was a very good epilogue and fitting a fitting goodbye for Hal. You hit all the right spots. And it really just, it, it really, it, these could have been small scenes within the miniseries, but I'm glad that you have it focused here. Because you have him, you know, going to see John Stewart and helping out with his condition. Uh, you know, Guy stepping up and being, you know, guy, and Hal saying what I've always said about Guy, which is, yeah, he may be a jerk, but if I'm going to have somebody watching my back, I want Guy Gardner. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm, and again, I'm giving credit to Mars that he got the character of Guy right, it, you know, in the way that so many other writers don't. And, uh, you know, the fact that he does put him in there as this this person who's doing the right thing because he's he wants to do the right thing is uh, incredibly great. And the fact that you know, Mars gets him. So uh, there are so few writers and I'm looking at you, Howard shaken and <laughs> crappy <laughs> collateral damage go screw yourself awful sorry uh <clears throat> going back to the book but yeah these little vignettes in here they they really cement the idea that hal is saying goodbye to everything and that he's making peace with things and trying to figure out what he needs to do and it's it's just awesome i mean i don't think we could you know, we could go in to talk about all this, but I think this is just basically Ron Mars saying this is Howl's send-off, and I think it's a really good one. Yeah. yeah. It's it's Howl kind of searching his soul and coming to the decision that not only am I going to step up, I'm going to step up and make the ultimate sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And that is, as, as much as I lean towards Kyle as Green Lantern, there is a part of, of Howl that I love that when it finally comes down to it, after everything, he's like, yes, I am a hero. I am going to do what has to be done, mm-hmm. no matter what the cost is. Exactly. And yeah, he you would think that this would be the thing that redeems him and that you could put a rest to the character and say he finally got his out. He got his Barry Allen, you know, Crisis on Infinite Earths out and he he saved the planet and I so wish that was the case, but it's for when this was being written, I thought this was a wonderful way to end the character of Hal Jordan. And I, I really enjoyed this book. You know, now that you point that out, that is the one thing that is missing is I would love for him to, to have a moment with either Wally or, or the, the graveside of Hal of uh, Barry Allen. Mm-hmm. I think that comparison would have nailed everything home. Yeah. This is still pretty complete, but that's the one gripe I will put on there. Mm-hmm. Well, and I don't know. I guess the one thing would they have a great, did they have a grave sign for Barry? Did they have a more memorial for him in like, or in uh, Keystone? Uh, I don't know. I know it was the flash museum. Yeah. Dang, they might've had my time frame. So, they, they might have had, you know, I, uh, I'll get with Dave Walker and ask him about that. But yeah. um, once again, this is a time period period where I didn't I could not afford comics, even at their price. Understandable. But yeah, that would have made it, you know, that would have really cemented the idea that Hal is making the ultimate sacrifice in the way that, you know, a person that he felt was one of his best friends did as well. So that, yeah, having 
some sort of uh, nod to Barry would have been would have been the only thing I think could have made this issue a little bit better. Yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with it now, but yeah, that was just that would have been like the the cherry on top. Yeah, the next level. So. But yeah, if you don't have any more notes, I mean, like we like I said, notes were pretty sparse about this good issue, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I think I think you know once you did the synopsis, it said everything that needed to be said. That Hal is saying goodbye and. It's it's an it's an emotional run, but there's not a lot plot wise, not a lot to dissect out, outside of that first conversation. Mm-hmm. I agree. All right. Well, we're going to wrap this up here after we take this break with Final Night Part Four, where we see essentially the uh, end to Hal Jordan. There you go. The dawn of an age, the founding of a family. You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happened to you. You're changing. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me? To all of us. I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind, right? And so was born the Fantastic Four. For soon the Mole Man will have the entire world in his power. I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth. And now mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're the palms in the hands of Dr. Doom. Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next victim. You earthlings can't change the way I can. That means I'm the most powerful person on Earth. I've been expecting you, for I am the Thinker. I vow never to return, my lord, until the Fantastic Four are no more, and the planet Earth is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ralatons, King of Kings, Master of Men, and Lord of the Seven Sons. You're just a muscular freak, blind or hulk. Stop! You must not enter the castle of Diablo. My journey has ended. This planet shall sustain him to the drain of all elemental life. So speak, Galactus. Flame on! It's clobbering time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning witnessed the origins of a legend. The Fantasticast. FFcast.Libsyn. Com. And we are back once again to take a look at the last part of the series, Final Night, Part 4. Again, it was cover dated November 1986. It was released the next week on September 25th, 1996. $1.95 and $2.75 was the price for it for U.S. and Canada. The title was The Final Night, this time spelled K-N-I-G-H-T. Again, the story of Carl Kessel, Stuart Eminen, Penciler, Jose Marzan Jr., Inker, Patricia Mulvihill, colorist, letter of Gasparler Saladino, and assistant editor Ali Morales, and editor Dan Thorsland. Flying over the snow-covered pyramids, Green Lantern Kyle Rayner laments the fact that his attempt to recruit former GL Hal Jordan to come help with the Sun Reader crisis has turned up nothing. But the heroes haven't given up hope yet, as Kyle sees the people prepping for the long haul in Metropolis. Hearing the people tell tale of Luthor planning alternative energy sources and protective habitats, Green Lantern feels that they might make it through this yet. 
However, him being away from Earth has left him out of the loop, as Wonder Woman informs him of the true direness of the situation. Back at Star Labs, Brainiac 5 and Luthor say that due to the shrinking of the sun and its attempts to quote-unquote heal itself, it will go Nova in less than two hours. But Luthor has a plan, to place half a million force field generators around the sun to contain the explosion and hopefully destroy the Sun Eater. But in order to place them there, someone will have to pilot Dust's spaceship to the sun and deploy them. And although Luthor is the most informed on the plan, he chooses Green Lantern to make the possible suicide run. Kyle jumps at the opportunity to save the world, but is suddenly teleported away. And with Kyle gone, Batman suggests that the most qualified man go. But Luthor isn't about to take the risk, and it's up to the Man of Steel, Superman, to make sure that the Earth doesn't suffer the same fate as Krypton. Amazed by his selfish selflessness, the heroes watch as Superman heads off to prepare for his mission and make his final goodbyes. A little while later, the team watches as Dust's ship leaves the launch bay with its cargo. Surprisingly, Superman is there as well to watch the launch of the ship. Brainiac taps into the ship's comm and finds that Pharaoh has hijacked the ship and is piloting himself. But not to worry, he'll be back because he promised to bring Spark's flight ring back. The heroes scramble to try and rescue the overzealous hothead when who happens to show back up but Green Lantern and Parallax. Superman is glad to see the former Green Lantern, and of course Batman is entirely skeptical. Cal asks Hal if he could save Pharaoh and stop the explosion, but Hal counters with why should he stop there? Hal goes on his whole spiel about making everything right again, which Batman feels is just Parallax again trying to play God. Hal says it's different this time, and he swears on his oath that he will save the Earth. Superman accepts the offer and says that he's glad to have Hal back, to which Hal replies that he's not coming back. He's just setting things right. In space, Pharaoh is dispensing the force field generators, but not quickly enough. Saturn Girl telepathically tells Pharaoh to abort the mission, but the hero isn't willing to give up. But it's too late as the sun violently explodes and lashes the ship with waves of white-hot intensity. Mourning the fact that he's failed, Pharaoh makes his last transmission to the heroes, sorry that he didn't re return the flight ring. But instead of being burned into atoms, Pharaoh is rescued by the giant-sized parallax. Holding the impetuous youth in his hand, Hal explains that he hit a sort of cosmic pause button and says, sends Pharaoh back to Earth. Then, stealing himself for what's to come, Hal begins to recite the oath he honored for so many years as he draws the energy of the Sun Eater into himself. Struggling against all odds, Hal absorbs the Sun Eater and stops the Sun from going Nova. Crisis averted, the heroes and denizens of the planet celebrate their victory and mourn the loss of the former Green Lantern. Atop the Daily Planet building, Superman and Batman marvel at the rising of the restored sun. Cal thinks that Hal Jordan turned it around at the end and went out a hero. Bruce feels that one action doesn't make up for all the wrongs that he did. And as the Dark Knight departs, the Man of Steel looks over a planet where in brightest day, in darkest night, no evil shall escape their sight. And uh, I think I mentioned this prior to the episode that if this story were turned into a Justice League movie, I expect, you know, they're going to be making a Justice League movie eventually. If they were to do this as a live action Justice League movie, 
this would be amazing. I think yeah. this is the kind of story that just works for it. It's it's better than what it's got the same setup as you would get in a lot of the recent Roland Emmerich films, like The Day After Tomorrow in 2012, of the Earth being really under peril, and they could pull that off. But they could pull it off with the DC superheroes there to try and uh, make things, you know, click. So I would love to see something like this, just not done by Roland Emmerich. No. <laughs> well, that's the thing you do want with the Justice League movie is a threat that is that is very real, very big scale. And with this series, every time the heroes get a leg up, they get knocked back two spots. Mm-hmm. It was at the time you there was outside of Hal. I could not figure out a way out of this predicament. And it actually, I mean, I had no illusions that this was the end, but the question is always how, you know, it's the, the journey, not the destination. And this was definitely such a great solution, not only to us, a, a very good, very underrated crossover, but a good journey for the character of Hal Jordan. Mm-hmm. And it's a good redemptive arc. It's, it's a way for him not only to, do what he initially set out to do as parallax, but do it in a way that doesn't involve, you know, massive unwanted destruction of the timeline and everything. It's, it's saving earth, which is what Hal Jordan as a hero, his entire time wanted to do. So mm-hmm. uh, there's, there's nothing wrong with the storyline and it, it is a, it is a wonderful bookend to, to the story of Hal Jordan. And if Hal Jordan never came back, I think this would have been a a really wonderful out for him. He he yeah. went out as a hero, rather than killing the the, the core and uh, other things, other such atrocities. Yeah, well, yeah, I guess that'd be kind of a bad way to go out. So he 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 gets to redeem himself here. It's it's perfect. Yeah, go ahead and let's. Uh, I'll let you go ahead and lead with the notes this time. Okay. Um... I, I really have nothing to say on the cover. This one is not as striking as most of the covers in this series as a whole. This is probably the weakest of the four, to be honest. Mm-hmm. It does have the the very typical Christ-like pose of Hal, which I guess doesn't bury the lead. But uh, the one thing that I commented on this cover, it has some characters in here that I think aren't really even... They might be in the background of the book, but they aren't really even used in the background of the book. Especially, we've got Impulse, Green Arrow, and I think Dr. Light down there by uh, Black mm-hmm. Canary. So, uh, and not the rapey Dr. Light, thankfully. It's the female Dr. Light. So Rape-free. Yes. Yes. Always, always better if you can have that. <laughs> um, it just, it, did, it didn't wow me. Yeah, it, it was, it was all right. But yeah, it wasn't one of the things where... It wasn't as striking as that third issue, you know, with having the four heroes come up and then seeing the body bags underneath them. That that's one that just uh, catches your attention. Mm-hmm. Um, jumping to page two, Metropolis covered in snow. And yeah, the circumstances, circumstances are a little bit different, but I think this may be the, the pinpoint of when I suddenly would always start picturing Metropolis as a wintry city. Because that's, for some reason, when I think of Metropolis, there's snow on the ground. Why? Probably this image. Hmm. Uh, Not only that, but it does correspond perfectly with one of the last pages when the sun does come back. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's a, I also want to point that out, that this was also used in the uh, first book of Final Light. The image from this, uh, you know, sort of begun the storyline. We saw a panel of, 
you know, Metropolis from the same angle, except it was bright and sunny. The sun was shining on the left-hand side of the horizon over there. And then at the uh, end of the first book, we saw the sun being blocked out by the sun eater on the right-hand side of the horizon, the same image. So they've used this image of Metropolis quite a bit throughout the storyline, but it is very striking. I like that you get to see where, you know, all the uh, buildings, all the major buildings of Metropolis are, the planet and Lex's tower. And I guess is that the WGBS building, the big one? Yep. Yep. There you go. You know what it made me think of? And I got actually got distracted doing my notes. A few years ago, there was on DC.com a a, a wallpaper, a, a screensaver. That's the term I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. Very easy term I should have in my hand. Um, that was a, a live Metropolis. There's a billboard that would show the latest DC stuff drawn by Jim Lee. A helicopter would occasionally go by. Uh, based on what time it was, the sun would go down and you have a nighttime Metropolis. This image made me think of that. So I spent a, a good 45 minutes seeing if I could track that down. I have not been able to track that down as of yet. That's disappointing. Uh, that's my ADD at work. You're welcome. <laughs> nice. I'm uh, again. I'm going to have a note on page three. Mm-hmm. Kyle, Kyle's been away for a while, uh, obviously trying to track down Parallax, and I like the fact that he's out of the loop. But I also like the fact that he's got that sort of youthful twenties exuberance, and you know, he I think is one of the few people in this entire book that actually takes time out to smile and takes time out to sort of revel in the idea that they may make it through this. So uh, that's one of the things I like about Kyle's character is like I said, his youthful exuberance and his willing to willingness to try and find the positive in things. Even if, you know, on the final panel on this page, wonder woman has to play Debbie downer. So, well, yeah, there's a lot of Debbie downers, Batman and wonder woman are big buzz kills. Mm-hmm. Cause Kyle still has, he, he's he's not a realist, which I kind of like. There's a part of him that really does look at the situation and say, you know, I've got a power ring that allows me to do anything. Wonder Woman's an Amazonian princess. I think we got this, you know, handled at some point. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of the role of the reader is we know that this is going to somehow resolve. We don't know how yet. So the Kyle is sort of echoing the reader's point of view to some extent. Yeah, I can see that. Definitely. Uh, that's that's all I have on that page. Okay. I, do, I do have some on the next page where I don't like the way Eminem draws that version of Wally's costume. Hmm. Uh, how so? Just the mask or the... Well, with that version, the sort of metallic, uh, pupilless version, it was uh, constantly... You know, there are artists that could just knock it out of the park. Mike, uh, Ring, Mike Wieringo? Yes. It's always... You know, you're always going to get good, good service from that, but... The costume, especially the face, threatens to look off with with the pup- without the pupils if you draw those eyes too small, kind of like a Spider-Man face. Yeah, because I, 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 I'm comparing it to Waringo's arts. Waringo drew the eyes much larger, so this looks without the pupils there. It doesn't look kind of. Mm, it's the proportion to the eyes to the 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 ear wings, the ear pieces. I can I can see that there. Yeah. But it kept drawing my eye because I'm like, what? What is wrong with Wally? Because mm-hmm. that, that's my one of my favorite renditions of, of Wally was when he had that that costume that was it was still very much the Flash, but sort of his own stamp on it. Yeah. And Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad this is something that we'll get to once we get to you mm-hmm. know Pharaoh taking on this page five again. Uh, I keep pointing this out, but throughout all of this. 
Luthor is just such the condescending dickweed. Uh, you know, in, in the face of impending doom, all he can do is belittle and berate these heroes who are trying their best to work solutions to save the planet. The fact here is like fascinating Flash, you know, just Wally needs to go up there and bitch slap him a couple of hundred thousand times. <laughs> it's super speed. Because... Put him in his place. <laughs> Taste the back of my gloved hand. <laughs> uh, and you'd think of, of all the characters there that Captain Marvel. Oh, wow. I just realized something that I'll jump back a page, but I, Captain okay. Marvel being the youthful Billy Batson would say, wow, you're being a jerk, sir. <laughs> Holy moly, what a dick. <laughs> of course, Billy wouldn't say that. Oh. I did notice, though, I, and I, I, for some reason it went right, bat, right past me. When I'm looking at page four, it just dawned on me that Captain Marvel and Wally West are standing next to each other. You have two of uh, my favorite characters, but you also have two guys whose costumes are based on red with a lightning bolt insignia right next to each other. Hmm. I wonder if that was, you know, I wonder if that was the, I've got to assume that's Plata because we've yeah. got the Legion characters standing on one side. We've got the, mm-hmm. the Superman and Wonder Woman who, you know, essentially the power team up there and Batman, of course, back in the shadows over there. So, yeah. But yeah, I just, I happened to catch that. I'm like, wow. And they're two of my favorite costumes, period, in mm-hmm. all of comics. Yes. I've heard you describe, especially on, uh, I think you did it on uh, your one on Superman Forever when you're talking about. Uh, Captain Marvel. And I know you talked about it on Charlie's show where you talked about the Superman Shazam about the design of Captain Marvel's costume. And I mm-hmm. really enjoyed that. So if you want to learn about more about Shazam or not Shazam, Captain Marvel, definitely go check out. Uh, was it the geek cast or was it Superman? It was Superman Age? in the Bronze Age. Yes. The most well, as we record this, the most recent episode. So, yeah, good stuff there. Page seven is where I have my next real note where. Yeah, Luther shows what a giant coward he is. And uh, to, to no one's surprise, I mean, he's he's the complete egotist and saying that I know what's going on and I have the knowledge that will save us all and I can get this done. But when it when it comes to stepping up to the plate, Luther is just as human as the rest of us and even more cowardly than the rest of us. However, that allows us to have Superman step up. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yes. I, I love I love that third panel where Superman's kind of shaded in there. And, you know, uh, Luther's just been ranting and raving and not, going, not wanting to go. And Superman says, perfectly, your reactions are perfectly human, Luthor. And it's just he's so awesome in this. And the fact that he he's not he's not super powered. He is as human as Luthor now. But he's able to step up and do the thing that no one else would want to do. It, it's so amazing. Uh, I understand how people love this character. Mm-hmm. And I so love this iteration. If this could be the iteration of the character from now on, this is how I want Superman to be portrayed. Yeah, he doesn't complain. He doesn't say, oh, oh, this is – he's not forlorn. He's just, I have a job to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, this is something I accepted when I became a hero. So let's get to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, 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 hmm? Go ahead. Go ahead. As I say, he just hits the ground running mm-hmm. when he does that. The the fourth panel where he says, I've already lost one planet. I'm certainly not going to stand around and lose another, no matter what the cost. If anything, 
if any if any sentence ever defines Superman, I think that does. This is one of those slow clap moments. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that sarca- sarcastically. No. This is where the guy does it in the theater. And it's just just a slow building applause. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and then, of course, you know, I'm glad that uh, Captain Marvel's there to go in there and try and try and dissuade him to, from doing that. Because Captain Marvel knows what Superman means to the planet. And, you know, even with even with Captain Marvel trying to dissuade him, Superman's like, no, I have to do this. And there's a chance that, you know, once the sun explodes, it'll supercharge my powers and I'll be fine. He's trying to look for the for the bright spot in the midst of all this darkness. And again, it's the one thing I love about Superman. Well, it's not the one thing, but it's one of the things. I love. Well, that's the core. That's the core of the character is he'll do what he needs to do to protect these people, to even to his own sacrifice, he did it with against Doomsday. He'll, you know, if it comes down to it, if it, if he is sacrificing himself would save a planet of people, he's going to look at it like Spock did in Wrath of Khan. The mm-hmm. needs of the many outweigh the needs of one Superman. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what makes him that's what makes him Superman. Yeah. And then this is kind of a it echoes what I've said about the character for a long time, that even without powers, he's still going to be this hero because that's his his person his character uh just his sense of honor Mm -hmm. and uh on the next page you know everyone everyone takes a notice of it you know pharaoh and cosmic uh you know cosmic boy take a look at him and it's like just amazing and and then he goes away and you know, picks up the pen and paper and writes a goodbye letter to lois and Mm -hmm. I, i i will have to you know honestly say that i kind of got choked up when i read this i mean honestly i mean this is this is such good writing and such a good character moment for him that in his last moments he's not going to you know phone her or anything he's going to do the the most personal thing and write her a letter saying that he may not be coming back i mean this is just awesome yeah probably the Biggest, one of the well, this is where the the a bunch of really great scenes start happening. Mm-hmm. This is where the emotional level of this story starts ramping way up. Oh yeah, but yeah, it'll it'll this because I mean it, it, in the same situation where I'm about to do something where I may never walk back and see my wife again, she's the first thing that's going to be on my mind. Mm-hmm. And this is right before they got married, so Lois knows his secret. They are romantically involved they are you know i mean they've been through the death and return he knows that calling her would probably mean that she would i don't know that she would try to talk him out of it but i think it would be more traumatic mm-hmm. so he's he's being considerate of her in that respect too and as you said it's more personal to have this letter this tangible thing that once he's gone she can cling to that she can hold exactly yeah that's a very good point but then we get the uh the launch of the ship and we find out that Superman wasn't the one who left and it's actually Pharaoh. Now this is going to be where I'm going to sort of uh, point to you, David, as the Legion guy. Now, how in some way does this parallel the uh, death of Pharaoh lad storyline in the Legion of superheroes book or how does it relate to it? Pretty much, pretty much. I mean, beat for beat kind of how it happened. Um, Sun eaters eating the sun. Superboy's about to deliver a blow, you know, do kind of the same thing. Superboy is about to sacrifice himself and Pharaoh's like, no, I can't let you do that. And he launches himself out there. And in the end, 
unfortunate. It's kind of the same thing because he fails at first. He gets a second chance. And in, in the story, the original story in 353 of Adventure Comics, you know, he does sacrifice himself going to fight the Sun Eater, going in to save it and saves everybody. And of course, here there's a twist on that when Hal shows up. But up until that point, you know, the basic plot beats that Clark is about to, you know, unfortunately go to his demise to save everybody. Pharaoh decides to take it upon himself. And, you know, tragically, it ended here. Here, I mean, we're just getting reintroduced to this character in, an, in a very big revamp of the character, by the way. Because, you know, this is a character from, at this time, the 20th century, who will kind of be filling these big boots. But, yeah, in the story, it happened the same way. So it's it's a very good homage with a big twist to it. Mm-hmm. Oh. And it plays with, it plays with for a Legion fan, this is going to play with your expectations right up till that moment when Hal shows up. Yeah. Which is another slow clap moment, but we'll get to that. Well, and then you know we move on to the to the next page where Hal and Kyle do show up, and uh, I like it, but you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, this is one of the pages where it's backgroundless, yeah. and I think that kind of well, maybe that gives a sort of ethereal quality to it, but it also, at least for me, kind of takes me out of it because. Hal is supposed to be in the lab with them. He's appeared in the lab with the, all the heroes and everyone. So the fact that, you know, there's nothing behind him beside this sort of blank bluish screen, just a little takes a bit. But uh, another thing was, and, and maybe this is just me knowing the aesthetic design of Hal's uniform or Hal's parallax costume before his cape looks really short. I'm used to the very almost Spawn-like cape that Hal had as Parallax, and this one just barely comes down to around the back of his knees. So that's that's a, that was a note I had as well. Even his uh, Total Justice action figure had the very, very <laughs> flowing cape. So yeah, but yeah, Hal's here to to make the save, and of course, you know, Batman has to be Betty Bring down as well, saying that. Uh, Hal hasn't changed. He's still spouting the same things that he did when he was Parallax. In fact, you know, on this page, uh, what is it? Page uh, 12, I guess. No, the page 11, where uh, Hal is explaining everything to everyone. He does the construct of, you know, if he lets the sun go nova, it'll re-expand and the heat will melt the ice caps and flood everything. And you got the image of, you know, crops and everyone drowning. Uh, he says at the very bottom of this page, I could fix everything, which was kind of Hal's line as parallax throughout the entire zero hour thing is mm-hmm. that he was going to fix everything. So you kind of get the idea that maybe Hal hasn't completely changed or maybe he's just accepted, you know, what he has to do here. And he's only going, he's only going to fix things that are relevant to getting rid of the sun eater. So, and you'd think Batman, well, no, because of the way Hal's presenting it, yeah, I see where Batman's coming from to some extent. If Hal just said, look, I'm going to sacrifice myself, Batman would have been on board. It's like, yeah, you go ahead and do that. I'm, I'm good with this. <laughs> but the thing is about Batman not trusting Hal, not only is it justified after everything, it continues way down the line and up until, well, uh, Infinite Crisis was the first moment where I remember him having any trust at all in Hal. So, I mean, we're talking about years of this stalemate, um, you know, Batman keeping, well, he keeps everybody at arm's length and Hal's just a little bit further. So, yeah, 
Well, yeah, when especially when Hal came back uh, with the rebirth, the with Jeff Johns writing it, Batman was nowhere on with Hal becoming Green Lantern again. So yeah, yeah, it, but it, but, it, but it, Johns played with that arc really well. So <laughs> kudos. Yeah, and and again, I'm not. I'm not a person who's down on Jeff Johns. Uh, there are some things I don't like about him, but you know, I just I'm here to promote this era of the book and these writers. Uh, Johns has his fans, and uh, he's written a lot of good stories. But I want people also to look back at the history of this and, lo- and realize that before Jeff Johns, you know, came around to write the Green Lantern books, there were some really good stories in here. So, and uh, again. Uh, I, I like the fact that Batman is at least the one person who's a bit skeptical about this. You know, yeah. sometimes it can be taken to an extreme, but here I think it's I think it's a bit justified. Yeah, I I just had this weird notion in my head of uh, I want to get Batman and Reed Richards in the same room and see who can out paranoid each other. <laughs> uh, Green Lantern's going to destroy us all. No, I think will destroy <laughs> us all. What if they turn? What if they turn evil against us? Yes, thanks, yeah. Reed Richards, paranoid bastard. Fear um, of the thing. <laughs> um, I think the thing that cements it for everyone uh, on page twelve, where Hal basically says, "I will do this on my oath." I think that's, uh, and we get the panel of everyone looking at each other, and they realize then that Hal's he's on their level that he's going, he's not going to be kind of nutsoid and try and reshape, you know, all reality. He's just going to do what needs to be done to save the planet. And Mm -hmm. I think that's where everyone's on board and Superman extends his hand to try and shake his hand. And it, it, it it works here. I mean, originally everyone rightfully so should have been kind of skeptical about how coming back. And it's nice to see again that Superman is the one who's the least has the least amount of skepticism and the most amount of uh, willingness to forgive. So uh, I like that here on this panel here. Yeah, Superman steps up. Mm-hmm. But that's Superman. Another aspect that I love about him, and I know this isn't a Superman podcast, but when in when in Rome, yeah, you know he does look for the good in people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I'm not, I'm not. Uh, averse to talking about Superman on this because Superman is front and center in this book and uh, yeah he's awesome in it the next page I really don't have anything uh, about uh, Pharaoh releasing the little shield generators to try and control and contain the explosion the uh, the uh, one thing I do have is on the next page on page 14 if you're gonna have onomatopoeia expressing a uh, dramatic explosion, that onomatopoeia needs to be doom. I think that's <laughs> perfect. They're going. They, it looks like somebody raided Todd McFarlane's dictionary. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, Pharaoh is pretty much toast. And, and 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 you know if if you didn't know that Hal Jordan was here, you know I think Pharaoh would rightly believe that he wasn't going to make it back. So yeah. Uh, well, and, first time this happened, he didn't. So that's true. But what a great way to play with Legion fans! Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just like uh, you know how this is going to go. Oh no, no, you don't. Oh, surprise! And then we've got giant size man. Th- I mean, giant size Hal thing. <laughs> Ew. Sorry. Yeah, you never want a, your giant size man thing anywhere around here. Um, 
but yeah, it's helping out, you know, basically standing there, pausing time and uh, saving Pharaoh. So awesome. What a great line, though. I love that. You know, my what about my ring? Can't have that. I know how important rings can be, <laughs> which, which is also funny because Hal's no longer he actually not only refused a ring from Ganthet, but he's not wearing a ring now. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I like that parallel, you know, that it, it's a nice little one off line that how is basically saying that he understands uh, the the importance of being a hero. And even though he's not the hero that he once was, he's trying to be a hero again here. Yeah. So my next note is on page 17 and it's just kind of a gripe and it's not really a necessary gripe because I know that there were different versions of the oath and all that, but I never cottoned to them changing it from in blackest night to in darkest night. It, it just doesn't ring. It just doesn't have the same flow in my opinion. But, you know, I don't mind them using it here because it is just the artwork just sells it here. And it's really epic watching, especially in that third panel on page 17, watching how struggle to try and absorb the sun eater to try and save everything. It's just it's glorious. See, I thought we were going to have the same note. I thought we were going to say something about the Starenko type background. (laughs) I, I don't I don't mind the backgrounds here. I mean, it's. It's uh, it's some neat sort of uh, just inky blue and blacks or blue and green or not blue green and black swirls, but uh, I, I I don't mind it so much. What about you? Just it, it feel it, once I adjust to the fact that it's not zipatone, I'm fine. Mm. But I kept ex- expecting to see the the telltale zipatone dots. Zipatone being the, the the weird print the the pattern they used to use for yeah. backgrounds. Um. It was just it was an adjustment because yeah. it's stylistically different from pages that came before. And with the exception of the following page, page 18, the pages that come after. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think this might be a bit of digital coloring as well. I know they uh, credit Patricia Mulvihill, I think, is the color here. But I think this is probably right on the edge of that sort of digital coloring generation. So it might be a bit of that going on as well. I don't know, but uh, I like that he ends up the the oath, you know, with beware my power, and then it's just the caption of in a different light. So he's not saying the Green Lantern oath. Well, he's saying the Green Lantern oath, but he's not necessarily Green Lantern, and he's doing it on his own. Yeah, and it's it's a it's a glorious end. It is, and uh, after that we just get a kind of wrap up. You know, Pharaoh's back. The sun didn't go nova. It didn't melt everything. We get little vignettes with the various heroes around the world. And we get the final wrap-up with uh, Cal and uh, Bruce on top of the Daily Planet. And it's it, it's it, it's magnificent. It's, it's a wonderful ending to the character of Hal Jordan. And it's an epic tale. Yes. Good word for it. Yes. Epic. Well, I mean, I guess technically every superhero story would be considered an epic by the dictionary definition. This one is is, is it earns it that title more than some other crossovers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't mind necessarily that Batman is still still skeptical. And I like the fact that Kessel is able to write the two characters, you know, giving uh, opposing sides to the opinion on how 
did Hal die a hero or was Hal still still a, a villain who just did one good thing? Does that redeem him? And I like that uh, Kessel basically allows the reader to make that decision for themselves. Mm-hmm. We see that Hal did an amazing thing, that he saved the planet, but that does that absolve him of all the wrongs that he did? And having two of the DC's big guns essentially talk that out is a great way to to sort of end up this tale. And it's, it's, it's some of the best, it's some of the best, very underrated stories that I've read in, in, uh, in a long time. Underrated is right. Because when people start talking about massive crossovers, memorable crossovers, crisis comes in, you don't hear secret wars too very much, which is appropriate, <laughs> but I rarely hear if, if ever final night. And I'm, I'm thinking this has everything. This has dire consequences Really good character moments like this one at the end where Batman's being Batman, Superman is being Superman. The reader is given a little takeaway from otherwise, you know, just a a big epic tale. And a major character arc comes to a close. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I agree with you. I mean, granted, Crisis and Secret Wars are, are amazing blockbuster crossovers, but it is disappointing that... Again, a lot of the stuff in the 90s, the the good stuff is so overlooked because I think a lot of times people just are overshadowed by some of the over-the-top ridiculousness that I've constantly talked about that they don't look for the good in the 90s. And there is stuff out there that is really quality writing and really quality artwork, and this is one of them. And uh, I'm glad that I was able to come on the show. I was glad that you were able to come on the show and talk to me about this because I really enjoyed covering it. It had been a long time since I've read it and I'm glad that I got to reread it again. Yeah. That's, that's the mark of a good comic when you can come back to it later and you may not have the same experience, but you still enjoy it and you find other things about it to love. And, you know, as I mentioned, this was one of the few times I got to check into comics because, you know, I was 19 years old. I was, you know, living on my own. I had no money to my name, and just thankfully, when I did get a little bit of birthday money, the first thing I did was go to the comic shop. And this was just such a simple pleasure for me. And so it still brings back warm memories for me to read this story. Well, it's got it's got all the major characters of the DC Universe at the time. It's a great story. It's a great ending. It has, you know, epicness written all over it. It's it's just what you want in a good comic book story. And like you, like we said at the beginning, it was put out in a single month. You would be able to collect it. It would be one month's worth of comics and you didn't have to wait for, you know, six months to figure out the resolution of it. It was all just one and done. And sometimes that's a really nice change from things. And uh, it would be nice if we could get that more often now. Yeah. You had it one other time that I can think of, and that was world war three, which only came about because they had extra material to try to fit into 52 that they ran out of room for. So they're like, we're going to drop this four issue miniseries on you in one day. So all four issues dropped in one day. And really, out, unless you were enjoying 52, which luckily I was, everything relevant was in that particular four issues. Hmm. Okay. Well, but yeah, I, I really thoroughly enjoyed this. And I'm actually, I, you know, I, I, I'm glad to see that Hal Jordan got the kind of send off that I think that he should have gotten, you know, and 
uh, we'll, I'll be covering next week, uh, sort of the aftermath of this in Green Lantern 81, but this was just, this was epic to be, to, and I, I don't use the, I, we use the term very frivolously now, but in all honestness, this is what an example of an epic story is. So, uh. yeah, David, uh, I really have to appreciate you coming on, especially at sort of short notice. I only uh, notified you about this uh, kind of at the beginning of the week, and you hopped up, stepped up to the plate, and uh, brought a lot of information here, and I'm so glad that you were able to make it on the show here. My pleasure. I will come on the show anytime you, you have me, so I appreciate you asking. No problem. Uh, why don't we go ahead and do like I always do at the end of the show, and I will let you plug uh, the places on the Internet where people can find you. Uh, well, of course, you can always find me at the Incredible Hulk homepage where I blog about the Hulk. Uh, I've gotten a lot more regular with that since a little bit more time has opened up. I throw out the smash of the day, which is just random panels, um, doing some letter column lookbacks or some other stuff coming down the pike on that. But of course, it's also the home of Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast, a show I do with Mr. Michael Bailey and Lee Busby, where we are going issue through uh, by issue through the entire run of Peter David's Incredible Hulk comic run. A 12-year run, which is probably one of some of the best written comics in, in comicdom. Um, we've also added X-Factor, also written by Peter David, to that uh, mandate. So we'll be covering his short run on X-Factor, kind of alternating weeks for a while. Um, you can also find me on Superman of the Bronze Age, where currently I am covering Superboy's adventures with the Legion of Superheroes. And just to drop you a line about that, if you're wanting to read more about Pharaoh Lad, go to twotruefreaks.com, where you find this podcast. Go through their link to Amazon and look up DC Library, Life and Death of Pharaoh Lad. Of course, not only is it a good book, a good buy for some Silver Age Legion stuff, but you're also giving a percentage to Two True Freaks. And uh, this is a good place to announce that at this point, you will probably have heard that there is a new podcast I'll be doing, a limited run, 14-episode monthly podcast with John M. Wilson and Charlie Niemeyer covering the adventures of Starman, the, the original Ted Knight Starman. We're going to be covering all his solo stories from Adventure Comics over the next 14 months. So a bunch of Golden Age excellence, which is kind of comparable to Green Lantern, except instead of a ring, we have a rod. Mm -hmm. So you can find that at starmanobservatory.blogspot.com. That will be coming out on the 26th, the last Thursday of September. So this is uh, probably the first time I've announced this publicly. Awesome. Well, considering that we're looking ahead at the future so yes well this will be coming out uh, probably about a, a couple of weeks before that should come out if it's coming out on the 26th so yeah yeah i will good lord now i'll have more stuff to add to my ipod rotation oh, <laughs> thank you luckily, no yes. I, i'm looking luckily it's to monthly it's monthly so that'll be awesome nonetheless yep and then hopefully in march there will be a little something something else coming down the pike mm-hmm. that i'm I've... not super secret project that i've been working on for feels uh, like forever i've heard bits and pieces of this and i kind of know what it is i'm not going to reveal anything about it but i'm looking forward to it if it's what i'm thinking it is it is what you're thinking it is all <laughs> right then uh you will have to what we'll have to let people know about that and you'll have to get me promos and whatever you can for that because i want to listen to that absolutely <laughs> all right david thank you for coming on thank you everyone for listening i appreciate you coming here at the two freaks website downloading the show be certain to come back next friday for another episode of just one of the guys until then we will see you then bye everyone you've been listening to just one of the guys a green lantern podcast 
hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingram. All images, stories, and music are copyright to respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcome. All spam bots are warmly welcome, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the new world too. And you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook. And now you can actually find me there, as it was a requirement of my new DeMontecourt contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Lafayette Awards group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Gods, a Greenland podcast. Are, are you are you surviving the uh, summer of nerd rage? Yeah, I've actually gotten past it. Once I got once I got uh, tired of bitching about Man of Steel, I'm like, I'm gonna move on. That's I good. I did what uh, what Shag was talking about. I was like, just mm-hmm. find the things that make me happy. Oh, so yeah. by the time Batfleck came out, I'm like, I just don't care. I don't have a horse in that race. See, I I actually had this long thought process about how we're starting to see mainstream superheroes, but we're starting to see them. We're seeing a slump in comic sales. We've got a lot of nerd rage. And I'm realizing opening this material up to the mainstream was probably not the best plan. Mm-hmm. It's uh, There's been a decline since we started seeing X-Men come out or things of, you know, high profile comic book movies. Well, I can agree with you. Yeah, the making them making mainstream, it does get more. It does get more people in the seats in the theater, but it really, I don't think, has done anything for the comics. In fact, you know, comic sales, uh, you know, have been level or declining ever since the 90s when the first X-Men movie came out. So mm-hmm. and and uh, the popularity of the movies is huge. I mean, the Dark Knight movies did big numbers. The Avengers, you know, made all the money in the world. You know, uh, people people are looking forward to Thor, even the Wolverine movie, which was considered you know kind of a critical failure you know is making money man of steel i think it the last thing i saw it was made over like 650 million dollars so you know it's making money but it's not translating into people actually being interested in the comics in any way shape or form they're just interested in what's going to be in the next movie and who's going to be playing the next character and it's disappointing but it's it's a really good book, I, and, and that's the that's the time period we live in. I was listening to uh, Hey Kids Comics, and they're talking about state of comics and some of the positive things. You know, we have books like Aquaman that are top on the charts and and quality reads at that. Mm-hmm. We have Hawkeye. Oh, I mean, God, just, yes. We have these characters that have been side you know side characters for so long that are suddenly getting these 
the right creator for the right time. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing the rise of sort of the B-level hero. that the, They're getting their day now. That's the time period we live in. And I'm kind of excited about that. 